This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. We all know that big data is very, very, very important to almost everything we do these days and what companies do. But author Martin Lindstrom believes that it actually can be the small data that has the opportunity to be, in many cases, the most important. It's actually that the small data can show bigger trends and being able to decipher that small data is, could lead to great breakthroughs. Martin, as we mentioned uh, a little bit ago, is also the author of the book Biology, B-U-Y-O-L-O-G-Y, that he had out before. And as we mentioned, he has this new book out called Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. And we welcome Martin back to the show. Great to catch up with you again, Martin. Likewise, Dan, and thanks for the introduction. And I want to start by saying small data is very, very, very important, too. Well, and I was going to go with an old line that was, you know, it's been around forever. And it's the old line, don't sweat the small stuff. Well, exactly. it, it seems like that the opposite is true, correct? Well, absolutely. And I think the issue here right now is that the corporate world has become completely blinded by big data. But I mean, it's very, very hard to describe emotions using data. And that is where the issue is. I mean, a, a great example of how powerful small data is, is in, in fact, a story back from 2002, where the Lego company was almost going bankrupt. Yeah. And, and what they did was to rely on big data. They concluded that the instant gratification generation basically would kill their product. So they changed the size of the small, tiny bricks to huge building blocks. And in 2003, the company was basically almost going into bankruptcy mode. So what happened was that the company decided to go into homes of consumers across Europe, and they met up with this young kid, an 11-year-old boy, a German boy, and they asked him, uh, what, what are you most proud of? Yeah. And the kid replied back, he said, this pair of sneakers, and he showed <laughs> an old, worn-down pair of sneakers. And then he sort of said, why? And he said, well, because it shows I'm the best skater in town. If I slide <laughs> down this skateboard, I basically am number one, and this is my evidence. And that meant that Lego changed the size of the Lego bricks to back to the tiny bricks, invented the Lego movie, and today's number one. And that's a really good indication about how we can be blinded by big data. That's amazing that, you know, something so kind of innocuous as that conversation really changes the path of, of a major company. And, and Lord knows we see the unbelievable uh, success that they have had over the last decade right now. Absolutely. And I think it's happening more and more. I think uh, it's fair to say if you take perhaps the top 100 biggest innovations of our time, well, perhaps around 60 to 65% are really based on, on small data. Uh, it's everything from Snapchat, which were basically discovered by coincidence, to even the post-it notes. Yeah. And, and the issue here is that as we become so obsessed with big data, we forget about the creativity. You have to remember that big data is all about analyzing the past, but it has nothing to do with the future, where small data would decide defining as seemingly insignificant observations you identify in consumers' homes, it's everything from how you place your shoes to how you hang your paintings, 
all of those, I call them emotional DNA we leave behind ourselves, is actually disclosing the future. So you need to basically the hypothesis first before you start to mine it and, and find correlations. So for, for those people that, that don't follow this real closely, and they, they obviously have heard big data used so much in the last couple of years, kind of get into the difference between big data and really what we're talking about here with small data. Well, big data is all about finding correlations in enormous amount of data. So an example would be back in 2012 where Google uh, were analyzing the search algorithms and were basically concluding that they could predict a flu outbreak uh, a couple of days before it would happen based on people typing in the word flu. Now, it happens to be so that basically the whole medical society was now pre-ordering all the pharmaceutical products in advance because they had that warning, which were great. But just recently, the Center for Disease Control uh, concluded that Google had been completely wrong. In fact, the numbers were two times of what they should have been mm -hmm. because people were not just typing in flu while the neighbor was saying, why are you typing in flu? And then they will type in the word too. And suddenly you will get these you know, inflated numbers. So big data is all about finding correlations. But small data is all about finding the causation, the reason why. And a simple question in a home would actually revealed that these numbers were probably a little bit too optimistic. And that is what we forget as we become so obsessed with proving everything with numbers. Well, and you uh, write in the book a variety of different kind of cases of, of this. And I, I wanted to bring up a couple of them because the, the one that really jumped out first was the fact that you talk about smartphone usage and Let's be honest, you know, if you don't have a smartphone, you're very much in the minority today. And how the use of a smartphone can gleam so much information about people right now. It absolutely can. It can tell an enormous amount of who we are and, and what we're dreaming about. And it can also encapsulate the uses of the phone into somewhat of a conclusion about a whole nation, which I find fascinating. I mean, one of the things I've done over the last 10 years is to spend a tremendous amount of time in consumer homes. I mean, it's more than 2,000 homes I either lived in or I visited across 77 different countries. So mm. you start to get a sense for what's going on. And what is fascinating is that if you, for example, take uh, the Russian culture, you will notice that they are not smiling a lot. In fact, they're very introvert. Yeah. If you take the Sarabian culture, you'll notice that there is not a lot of water there. There's not a lot of greenery. Now, if I go back to the smartphone and look at the uses of emojis, you will notice that the number one emoji used for Russia is a smiley. It's actually a smiley huh. with a heart. The number one emoji used for Saudi Arabia happened to be a potted plant. The number one <laughs> yeah. usage in UK is a wink because they have this funny, awkward British humor. So a whole population can actually be squeezed into a little signal, a little piece of small data would actually first make sense when you know the culture, when you spend yeah. time in the homes. And that is the fine balance we're talking about. Martin Lindstrom is the author of the book, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Kind of playing off of, of what you just said there with whether or not citizens are, are happy or unhappy uh, is a link into how kind of transparent a government actually is with their citizens. 
Well, yeah, and, and, and that is an issue because, first of all, transparency is a fascinating trend, which I've spent a tremendous amount of time talking about in the book. Here's the issue, and, and this is very counterintuitive, and as you know, Dan, having read the book, that my book is very counterintuitive because what we see is not necessarily what we actually get. But in terms of transparency, we're seeing a huge trend now. The more transparent the world is, the worse it becomes. Right. I mean, it sounds crazy. But the reason why is because transparency is putting everyone under a pressure. I mean, when I went to school, I had 23 friends in school. And they were somewhat my competitors. Today, an average kid, 15 years of age, would have half a billion because everyone is basically uh, accessible and you start to compare notes with everyone else. When you take a look at Chinese homes, I spend a tremendous amount in Chinese homes. Well, first of all, most Chinese ladies, I call their names are the same names as main actors in the United States because they want to emulate the American style. But they also get very envy when they see that they have TVs in the U.S., they have cars and radios and whatever. Mm-hmm. So suddenly the happiness level actually has degraded in China because of transparency. So what we're seeing is that that extreme transparency we have right now is causing enormous stress and insecurity among in particular the younger generation. But what about the companies that, that, that are trying to use this data and, and reach consumers in a, in a more effective manner? How are they affected by this, this shift and maybe even a growing focus on small data? I mean, you work with you know, quite, quite an array of companies yeah. over your career. Well, I think what we're starting to learn right now is that those companies which are completely reliant on big data actually start to have a problem. And I think the, the best example is Walmart right now, which is coming up with a second profit warning just recently. And they have the largest data mining warehouse in the world, period. It gives you a good sense of where we are. Now, one of my clients is Lowe's Food, which is a North Carolina-based uh, company. And, and what they have done is to actually live with the consumer. They basically are living in the community to understand the small data, pick them up. And as a result, they now have become much more focused on embedding themselves into the community and actually creating a community inside the store. So as you enter this store, they have now, based on small data, created an amazing community where every staff member acts in a character mood. You have Mm. a sausage work where they're creating handmade sausages in the supermarket. They even have uh, Halloween sausages glowing in the dark. I'm not kidding. They have a, <laughs> a chicken kitchen where they're dancing in the middle of everything when they have the chickens ready from the oven. They have a kegri walk where their kids can walk around. And what people are telling me, when the customers are telling me when I interview them in the store, they're saying, I feel at home. I feel like my community is coming back. And this is the essence of what we discovered when we were searching around for small data. We learned that the physical community is dying. It's all moving into a cloud. Mm -hmm. And people start to feel this huge desire for tactile interaction with people, to see people. Because the only thing we taught is basically our smartphone in the morning. So that was a concrete example about how a retailer completely turned around and, and is now one of the fastest growing in the region because they're listening to the consumer and those small data. And, and in some respects, you know, we've seen that happen over, over the last several years, but it, it, it still is a process where a lot of the companies that are out there 
they don't buy in 100 percent and that ends up that ends up becoming their one of their biggest downfalls it does and you know then it's so fascinating you saying that because just recently i had a i did a a speech for three thousand executives here in new york city and i asked them to raise their hand if they spend at least one or two days in a consumer home over the last year i mean two people two people raised their hand and that shows in yourselves everything because, as I tend to say, if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you wouldn't describe that person based on, well, I love her because she's six foot seven tall and I love the four last digit of her cell phone number that really turned me on, right? You know, we, we have to have that emotional aspect. I think it's very tricky for, for, for CEOs and senior managers to understand this because they are so reliant on sitting in meetings, in meeting rooms behind screens. Yeah. And so they have to strip that whole identity away from themselves and go into a real consumer homes. And that's where I think the younger generation will start to get it. I, I'll tell you one thing. If I was 15 or 18 or 20 or 25 years of age right now, the first thing I will do is to understand deep consumer psychology by spending time in consumer homes to be present because that is going to be the biggest asset in the future. Every company wants that. Well, and, and, you know, you think about it, how many CEOs in, let's, if if you went back 20, 30 years, how many CEOs would, would spend a day or two in the home of a consumer or a couple of consumers? They wouldn't, that wouldn't even be a thought in the process. Now it has to be. Now it has to be, and this is fascinating when you're raising that point, because you know, I had the honor of spending time with the founder and the owner of IKEA, uh, Ingmar Kambran. And, and uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I went into one of his stores in Stockholm in Sweden many years ago, and I had to meet up with him, and he was nowhere to be seen in the office. So I said to the staff, where is he? And they said, well, he's probably at the usual spot. I said, where is that? That is at the checkout. So I went down to the cash register. Guess what? They were right. He was sitting behind one of the cash cash registers and checking people out. And I said to him, why are you doing that? He said, because this is the cheapest and the most efficient research ever. I can ask everyone why they choose it and why they didn't choose it. And this is the essence of how good business leaders are. I think we lost touch with that. I think because we're so busy, we sort of use that as an excuse for not being present. But I think if you take the good upcoming entrepreneurial business leaders right mm. now, like in the GoPro, which is, you know, this guy, the founder, is very much hands-on with the real audience. He knows what they're thinking. He can be in the shoes of a consumer and think as them. And that instinct can only be established is where you, if you're really present in the homes. If you just look at numbers, you will never establish an instinct like that. We're talking with uh, Martin Lindstrom. His book is uh, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You may also see Martin on the uh, NBC Today show, part of their Main Street makeover as well. Uh, How has just the Internet affected small data? I mean, big data we kind of know, but having the Internet is kind of our be-all, end-all in our lives. Yeah. How's think, that? How's that affect small data? Well, it it affects us in a very very smart way because I think um, on one hand you have the the large companies like the Amazons and the eBays of the world which are thriving on big data, and I think a lot of small businesses have been made to believe that they have to follow that trend. Um, but I'll tell you one thing which is really interesting. As you may be aware of, Amazon just recently opened their first bricks and mortar yep. store in Seattle, yep. and they're about to open more of those. Now, 
Why did they do that? That's the well, rumor, they, by the way. We, we haven't gotten that one confirmed totally yet, but that's the rumor. That is true. That's true. I'm glad that you clarified that one. Um, and, and, but this is interesting. Why did they do that? And, and I think the answer very simply is that we're seeing the book sales is flattening out on Amazon, and even the, the Kindle sales is not growing much more anymore. So they're trying to find out other avenues. Now, their big data is telling them that they have to have a physical interaction. But this is interesting. Just recently, I did the keynote at the ABA, which is the American Bookseller Association in, in Denver. Mm-hmm. And as I spoke to these independent booksellers across the world, I said to them, are you afraid of Amazon? And they all said exactly the same no way and i'll tell you why they said because they do not embed themselves into the community because every bookstore today is embedding themselves into the community by living the soul of consumers they basically are talking with authors and integrating themselves i mean i met up with a bookstore with 10 staff which are running more than 1,000 book events a year this is this is becoming their life. Now, this is also reflecting of the power of big and small data because remember, they're both sort of like a yin and yang, where big data on the internet is good at going down the transaction path. It's a click, pick, and run. Yeah. You could say that the small data is fueling, in particular, the experiential shopping, the feeling of community, the feeling of the senses, all that stuff you can't replicate online. So I do think actually we talk about a yin and yang. And what I typically tend to say is that they are two partners in a dance. We just need to make sure that both are present. We can't live on one person dancing with himself, right? Yeah. How how much, though, do you think going forward, uh, the, the use of small data will really continue to grow because of the change of generations and, and and who will be making a lot of those decisions in the next 20 years will obviously be a little bit different than than who are making them now. I, th- I think then that we are right now seeing, as we do with everything else in our society, the pendulum is swinging back. Everything is always in Sinos curves. And I think we've gone too far down the track of the big data. And I think actually, and it's not just me saying this, we work and, and interact a lot with big data companies. And almost all of them saying to us, you're right. We need that hypothesis to mine our data, but people don't want to even listen to it because it's not fashionable to talk about this. I think what we're seeing happening right now is that the pendulum is swinging back again. And that we will see people will say, hey, that's great with those big data. We probably need to find some great hypotheses. I mean, a great example of that is as a major bank here in the U.S., which just recently were mining their data, concluding that they had too much churn. And churn yeah. is basically when people are just moving on with the bank accounts and they're just leaving. And they were concluding that people are not happy. So they started to prepare these letters and send them out to, to all the customers saying, why are you not happy? Well, yeah. I guess so. Just half a day of interviews later on revealed with consumers in the homes, revealed that these consumers were not leaving. In fact, they'd just gone through a divorce, and one of the two had to change their accounts. And that is what we are, I think we're starting to realize right now. And what you have to remember is that as robots and technology takes over, we as humans will become and have to become smarter. Good example is, is the auto-driving Google cars. I mean, uh, what they realized was that two or three of those accidents was not because of the cars. It was because the human were overriding the rule set set by the computer in the car. Yeah. So suddenly you have this game going on, and that will continue. So as big data 
tries to become smarter, the human will become even smarter. And that's the reason why we'll see the future will be all about those people which can add that creativity to the game, which can think differently. I tend to say to combine two ordinary things in a completely new way. And guess what? All of that comes out of the small data mindset. So we need to see creativity coming back again. And I think that means we need to get real again. We need to be present. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.